0: Are you looking to take the next step in your leadership journey? The Small Giants Leadership Academy is now enrolling the next class. Launching October 2021, this one-year program brings emerging talent together to grow their skills as purpose-driven leaders. Academy graduate Tori Carter-Coneen said, The Leadership Academy showed me practical ways to weave our values into our everyday work. Living our values led to a stronger culture, which led to more efficient and effective outcomes. For Katie Spica, these lessons carry over immediately into her working life. She shared, I hold a monthly training session that passes along what I'm learning to the rest of the group, from emotional intelligence to visioning and more. Personally, I'm growing so much from this program and I'm being intentional about adopting the traits of an inspiring leader. Does this sound like the right pathway for you or a rising star on your team? Visit www.smallgiants.org to learn more.
1: Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Mel Gravely. Mel is the CEO of Triversity Construction Company in Cincinnati. He's also the author of nine books on business success, leadership, and minority entrepreneurship, including his latest book, Dear White Friend, The Realities of Race, The Power of Relationships, and Our Path to Equity. Welcome, Mel.
2: Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to be with you.
1: Great to have you. You know, you and I have had the opportunity to to chat a little bit lately because uh, of my own education over this last uh, couple of years coming out of um, the George Floyd murders and the social justice movement and, and the establishment of the Lyft Scholarship Program here at the Small Giants community where we're trying to help minority business leaders through our Leadership Academy in underserved communities that otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And, and along the way, I've, I've continued to try to educate myself to understand, to learn, read books, articles, so that we can engage in this conversation about race, not only in life, but in the workplace and how it affects all of us. And as I said to you, uh, after being introduced to you and your new book, Ah, uh, dear white friend, I, I read the book, and it was absolutely the best thing I've read on the topic of race in my life. and and wow. and and it was it was not even the content. it was just your tone. And you came at this in a, in a in a loving, compassionate way that I just thought created an environment to have this conversation in a way that was very unique. And unusual. And, and so uh, one is I want to thank you for taking the time to write the book um, and uh, and the impact it's had on me. And I know many people, it's still fairly new out in the marketplace. So there'll be a lot of people that will hear this message. But again, great job on that. Um, and I, and let, let me start by just asking you to give a little bit of background on uh, Triversity, the company, and and what led you to write this book to
2: begin with? Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, uh, what, what an affirmation for the book. Thank you so much. That was, uh, I'm, 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 my breath is taken away by, by your words of, of support for the book. So, so thank you. And I look forward to talking to you more about that. Um, Triversity Construction is a commercial construction company. We're headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, we're about 100 people big and a little over 100 million in revenue. Um, we uh, have a division that does self-performance and in, in drywall. Um, which allows for us to have a, a diversity of, um, of types of people who work for us. Um, we are a people first, uh, purpose driven organization, always putting on people uh, ahead of profit um, and um, and looking for long term solutions to not only business problems, but also community problems. So you'll find us to be over engaged in, in in community work and support for the communities where we where we are, uh, where we're we're located. So that's who we are as an organization. About 16 years old, I've been CEO and majority owner since 2010. And um, um, it is the most uh, exciting work experience I've ever had. The the best people, the the best focused, the most clarity and uh, and the most impact, quite honestly, not just on construction, but but on our community. You know
1: the the path to getting to this point um, and the story behind it is very very interesting. You you've written nine books. Uh, what what got you to the point where you felt like you wanted to share your knowledge about business life and and ultimately led to this book about race?
2: Yeah, I almost feel like I've lived uh, you know multiple lives, professional lives. Uh, you know the first. Uh, eight books were um, related to my uh, my study. So uh, all of my PhD research is in the area of entrepreneurship, with a focus on um, minority uh, entrepreneurship, with a sub focus on African American entrepreneurship. So I've done a lot of research and study on the topic, and um, and so my earlier writing, the, the the eight books, were prior to this one, all about the nuances of growing. Um, diverse companies in, in the United States and how to work with large corporations and how large corporations and communities can work with and, and support the growth of uh, these diverse businesses. And so uh, that's what most of that work was. This one, Dear white Friend, is I would call it, to- call it totally different. It's another life. So as a business and civic leader, which is the role I play now as the CEO of Triversity, my perspective on race is articulated through this book. Um, and it is heavily, it's a heavily researched book, but I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of those people in the field who are doing that heavy research, so I am not the the PhD, if you notice, even on the cover of the book, I do not, um, the, the author line does not say Mel Gravely PhD, although I have one, I don't put it on this book intentionally. Um, this is about me being a business and civic leader, and seeing the realities of race, and and seeing the value of relationships, and, and beginning to see a real path to equity. and uh, And and it's almost a, well, it's not almost. It is a series of letters to my white friends uh, to 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 enlighten them on those three topics.
1: I love the way you put it together like that in this series of letters, and and uh, you you disarm the conversation uh, very early on. Uh, and uh, uh, as a, a, a white man and a business leader myself, uh, I was taken by that approach. And one of the things you told me, and I'll say me because I was one of the people you wrote to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because now we're friends by Absolutely. the way you approach that conversation. And you told me I wasn't a racist. Um, tell me why you you shared that with me.
2: Yeah. So, you know, my, my writing process includes a lot of... Um, people reading it as I'm writing it. So I'm I'm sharing letters with friends. So imagine during during this writing process, I'm sharing letters with friends. And um one of my friends read the first seven letters or so and he said, Mel, I was holding my breath, waiting for you to call me a racist. Mm. And uh and finally later in the book you you decided not to. And he said, I just need to hear that a little earlier so I can I can breathe. <laughs> uh and here's what I would say to you that um uh, t- two reasons one is 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 a reality that i, I don't I can't imagine my friends being racist right they're such a when i define a racist people who intentionally are inflicting harm on others based on their race i my friends are not those people so there's there's that reality the second one is practical so if i want to have a good conversation with you and i want to share my perspective and have it to be heard it just doesn't seem practical to start that conversation by calling you a racist or any other name. So, um, it's not a word I use lightly. I am not afraid of the word racist. I, I say that in the book, I'm not afraid of that word. I, I just don't know many racists. Now, now with that said, um, and I, and I know it's disarmed, it does bother some of my, uh, black friends who think, well, of course they're racist. I, I, I again, I'm not questioning other people's definition. Undermine my friends are not racist, but it's not whether they are or not. That's the key point. The key point is we're operating in a set of systems that brought us to a place that really none of us or few of us directly created, but yet we own it together. And that's really what I'm trying to get people to see. Why do you think it's so
1: difficult to have this conversation to begin with? And why is there so much anger in society today that, that makes it,
2: challenging for all of us to just simply open up and share yeah um it's it's multifaceted and complex but i think it starts with um the way we've been talking about race and the way we've been talking about it is more monologue than it is dialogue um and no matter what side of this issue you're on you're rarely face to face in person uh, in 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 relationship with a person i should say that you're having a conversation with you are usually talking to people in your echo chamber or writing to people in your echo chamber or responding to people in your echo chamber and uh, and then and all you can hear is what those other people said about this topic and you don't agree with it so i think part of it is the setup of separation i think we've also made certain things just so taboo and so complex and so fearful that you're afraid to say the wrong word. You're afraid to say things the wrong way. Um, and, uh, and all of that just creates this soup of, of, uh, of of a difficult time coming together, a difficult time having this conversation and we can't make progress. It's just that simple, Paul, if we can't figure out how to talk about what we're feeling and experiencing and what we see, how can we hope to solve it? So, but I think that's what makes it so difficult. I think we've, we've spent A couple hundred years getting to this moment and and very little of it has prepared us to have a really fair, open, honest, back and forth um, conversation about this topic. We didn't learn it in school. We didn't learn it at home for the most part. We're not able to talk about it in community out of fear. We don't talk about it in our workplaces because that's not where it belongs. I mean, it's just all this stuff that uh, has led us to right now. And um, uh, we're just not equipped for this topic. You know,
1: I, I think you're right, and uh, in my study over the last, you know, 18 months or so into the topic, I, I have, I'm committed to changing that. I'm committed to engaging in the conversation, and, and I don't actually have the fear. Of course, we, you know, I'll say up front, hey, I may say something wrong. I want you to tell me. Uh, uh, I need to be sensitive to to all of that, but. Uh, I remember bringing together a group of um, Black business leaders in our community, in our little network, just to ask questions about what it was like being a minority growing up, not not so much in general life, um, but in business. What was it like in your career? What challenges did you have? And I remember first talking to a couple of people saying, I wanted to do that and said, no, you don't do that. Don't even have that yeah. conversation. You know, people don't want to talk about that. I said, but why not? I, I can't imagine they wouldn't want to talk about, it. I'm just not a fr-. And And when I did it, I just felt that I, I felt that, that the people I brought into the fold were completely open to it. And, and, and in, in many ways appreciated the fact that I was willing to do that. And so I think all of us have to take a little bit of a risk here. Um, but your approach allows us to feel more comfortable Doing that. Now, I, I want to I take you back a little bit, Mel, because you've obviously created a, a successful uh, business of size and scope, and you're making an impact in, in the community. Um, you mentioned in the book how you're a self admitted product of affirmative action early in your life. You decided to take a certain path in your life. Um, so I'm trying to get a sense of what made you who you are today. What were those early influences from your parents um, that started you down this path?
2: Yeah, I um you're right. i do I do uh, refer to myself as an affirmative action. I think I say affirmative action baby, or at least a product of affirmative action. Um, and, and I, I got to tell you, you know, if you look back through my life at these pivotal places of of whether it's education, Or if it's the, you know, the co-op program that I joined when I was a freshman in college was a minority IT or data processing at the time, dating myself a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, program. When I joined IBM the first day um, uh, of the seven people that, that started that day, five were black, which meant to me. IBM was doing something intentional, so so it just it, this just kind of is a is a is a trend throughout my life, and uh, and I'm not if we're not intentional about including we the 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 barriers were already set, so uh, but it starts back with my parents. I mean, I was very blessed to have two engaged parents that knew what they knew and uh, were serious about what my sister and I would do around education. And I think that's where it started. You know, I wasn't always in, in line with their vision. Um, I admit that, but they were always very clear about how important education was, but also how important putting yourself out there was, be, being willing to engage in new relationships. Um, we we're in an all black neighborhood, um, but uh, my father was very intentional around uh, when he became a city councilman. We had a ward system, so he was voted in by a bunch of black people, but. But he he was very, um willing to, to, to put himself out there and to be in other kinds of groups and, and other kinds of settings and to speak out on issues. And um, my, my mother was, uh, was a compassionate, but very serious soul, very, very serious about our expectations as well. And, and all of that kind of molded the the, the mindset that I have. I'm very community driven. I tend to be very, very serious, very, very compassionate. Um, but, but also my expectations are pretty high as well. And I, I think that kind of set that table and I have always wanted to to not want it that's the wrong word I've always been willing to put myself in uncomfortable cultural situations um I've always been willing to do that and I think my 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 parents even as I was a child forced some of those situations which made them much more easy as I got older yeah
1: those early experiences um, certainly were important in how in how you've turned out so to speak Uh, but that that being willing to speak up speak out uh clearly came from your parents and um is having a continuing impact on on you now uh after through the education you know through that more corporate um experience how did you end up running uh your own company
2: yeah i've uh uh run a, a number of companies, most of them uh, much less successful than than Triversity. but but it it came from this um, There was just a bit inside of me, I thought there's more there's just more I can do. And I, I loved IBM. Um, that was my last corporate job. I, I love IBM, still do love IBM, love what they did for me in training and development, love how they showed me what a great organization looks like and and um, and how intentional they were about their education of their professionals. And I just can't say enough. My, my father still to this day, when I complain about something someone did in business, they say everyone didn't grow up at IBM. And uh, it's so true that what I learned about, you know, about business, a lot of it came from uh, from IBM. But but there was this this thing inside of me that there was something more. And I can't really articulate it to you, Paul, in, in specificity. But I, my first company was of, of size was a was a um, an engineering firm, civil and structural engineering firm. And you'll see a theme in my life. I'm not a civil or structural engineer, nor am I an expert in construction, but I own a construction company now. But I I got a couple of partners and we started a, an engineering firm. And that was the first um, real foray into something that was significant. I had run a in college, a side cleaning company that focused on funeral homes. So we'd come in um, after the calling hours and clean around the body um, uh, of a funeral home, and and no one else wanted that work. So we could pretty much charge what we wanted to, and it was pretty active business. So that was kind of cool as a side piece. And I had sold keychains as a kid. Um, at the molding alley where my parents were. So I'd always kind of done some things, but the engineering company was the first. and, and I, I, I just have this yearning to lead. I wanted to be the guy at the tip of the spear. I wanted to, it to, you know, succeed or fail a bit on on, um, on my vision and my strategy. Um, and, I, and I've never given up on that. As a black person,
1: what has that been like for you? Growing your career, in other words, I know, like you said at IBM, maybe you've got opportunities in a positive way that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten. But there's obviously been challenges along the way as well. Can you explain yeah. maybe one or yeah. two of those those challenges?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they all come down into, into a couple couple of categories, and 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 actually, even at IBM, you know, you you get in, and when five out of seven people are black. Um, all of them kind of have a little bit of a cloud over their head, a little bit of a question mark, like why are they really here? Are they w- really as educated and as talented and as capable? Um, and I- I'd be, be disingenuous with you if I didn't say, I put a chip on my shoulder a little bit that, you know, I really w- wanted to deliver because I knew people had that question. Um, and the same thing in business, you know, I've never been a white business owner, so I don't know how that feels, but you know, It is it is routine for for my my capabilities and the capabilities of my company to be questioned. That is just routine. Um, And so, you know, I I write about this in a book. I have to assume your negative perceptions Um, and whether they're conscious or unconscious. I run a business. Um, that we, every day we show up, we, are, we, are, uh, we have to assume that you have negative perceptions of our organization. And um, and therefore we have to show up in a particular way. We have to show up at, at, a, at a particular pace and, and show certain kinds of things early to, to alleviate that negative perception. And if we don't do that, then it's almost waiting for something to happen. So this, this assumption of um, lack of capability, the assumption of we've been given something that we didn't earn, um, our, our themes that we have faced we, we we still to in my in my opinion struggle to recruit talent I think people perceive that going to work for a company owned by an African American, um, whether it's conscious or unconscious, uh, especially in the construction industry, is uh, less appealing than, than not. And, um, and so when we go to market to, to recruit, we've got to keep that in the back of our minds. We still go recruit for the absolute best. We expect the best. We we hire for the best, but we realize that we've got it, we're in a dogfight. We've got to work even uh, differently. Um, than our counterparts, because we've got a brand that we've got to make sure we establish. So so it's those kind of perceptual things out there. The last thing I'll mention is um, when I was growing up, if if I had to actually, I'll, I'll even say today, if, if I had to go uh, inside of my family and raise, let's make the number low, $5,000, um, I'm not sure I could pull it off. And I'm talking every single family member. Um, And and that, we're not the only people without a lot of means in the family. So that's not the point I'm trying to make. But the the gap in wealth is so significantly staggering between blacks and whites. And and it graduates all the way in between. That, That difference in wealth, it guides what kinds of businesses get started. And you'll find that black people start businesses, not all, but... Again, of the data uh, that are service businesses, that are businesses that are less scalable, that um, are less differentiated, because you know you don't have a lot of R and D dollars, and you don't start manufacturing uh, companies because you don't have the investment for capital, and so you end up in businesses that are commodity driven, service businesses, and um, that are just less less profitable and difficult to to grow. So those would be a few I throw out. Um, not uh, d- doesn't mean. There haven't been great successful black entrepreneurs, definitely not saying that. I don't I hope I'm not coming across that way, but you asked about some of the barriers, and I think those have been some I've experienced.
1: One of the things I've experienced just over these last months is we've been recruiting people for the, the Lyft scholarship. And, and you kind of warned me about this in a conversation that we had: is that we're our leadership academy is really focused on existing businesses that have leadership teams and um, some might might be multi generational, but they're they're um, they're still small companies, but they're well established. And and um, a lot of the people that we've heard from are uh, in the, the underserved minority business community are really startups or more fighting for survival or might be uh, sole proprietors. And we're having a, a bit of a tough time att- attracting or finding those kind of companies, even in cities like Detroit. And you talk about this. Lack of multi generational businesses and in, um, in the minority business world, and and what what's kind of led to that, and, and why do you think businesses started by people of color are quote behind in that
2: area? Yeah, well, I, uh, it's, it's a it's a great point, and I think if we if we don't solve that, we we we're going to struggle to to close the gap on equity uh, racial equity in this country. Uh, but the reasons uh, part are. Uh, this long history of exclusion from the economic system. And I, I, you know, whether you go all the way back to slavery, or you go to Jim Crow, or you just go to how the civil rights laws were put into place that, that, that created a context a context that made it very difficult to start and grow a company. Um, if you, if you come forward, I already mentioned to you that the kinds of businesses that African-Americans start are those more commodity driven um, more service driven, lower margin kind of companies that don't create, you know, the, the hockey puck kind of, of, of wealth opportunities. I I think the the last one I'll mention is let's just keep in mind how recent it is that African-Americans and other people of color have been, um, have had access to the market. So, so, um, you know, I am the the first generation to go from high school to college. My parents did go to college, but, you know, my mother graduated from college when my daughter graduated from high school. So she clearly did not go mm-hmm. from high school straight to college. And so I, I'm that first generation. I was born in the 60s. So if you just think that through, um, we're still a, a generation or two away from multi generational. Opportunities, so there's a little bit of this that's timing. But I will tell you, here's the worrisome part for me: I don't think we're on track for it. So I would be feeling better if I were first generation, and I knew I felt good about the the, the next generation of Black-owned companies. But as I look at the landscape, putting on my previous hat of the researcher in this space, um, I don't see the businesses business structure, the business continuity planning, the business success levels that that enable the next generation. So I'm worried that we'll keep starting over, which is what we've been doing right now. So each generation grows a business. They don't pass it on. The business just kind of passes out. And and then the next generation comes and starts again. And a lot of people, Paul, have told me, oh, you, you should be so thrilled with your success. And Listen, I'm proud of our team. I think we have we run a good company and we've done some good things. Um, but our success, is, in my opinion, is totally based on a successful transition to a second generation because yeah. we haven't done that. We really haven't done all that. But so we made some money for the current people but we haven't created a company that can go on to the next generation. Um, and I think those are some of the dynamics surrounding it.
1: Well, we'll talk in, in a little bit about what uh, people like me and others can do to help. That I, I yep. think you you do say early in the in the book that that um, progress has been made, things are better, but we certainly have a long way to go. And 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 like you said, we're still early in this this journey. Let's take a quick break. As a leader, I value responsiveness. In fact, it's one of the values of the Small Giants community. When it comes to email. Crowded and disorganized inboxes can get in the way of being responsive to the people who matter most. I was so happy to learn that the team at Basecamp, a 2017 Forbes Small Giants award winner, has transformed email with their new product called Hey. Hey gives you back control of your inbox with features you never knew you needed, but you won't want to live without. The first time you receive an email from someone, you get to decide exactly what to do with it. You can add it to your inbox full of all the important stuff, your feed for casual reads, or your paper trail for receipts and other transactions. Or you can decide not to receive emails from that person. There's a handy reply later feature, so you never miss getting back to someone, even if you can't tackle it right that second. Hey also makes it easy to edit email thread subject lines into something helpful so you don't have to sift through long message threads that have evolved light years away from the original subject. Hey blocks spyware makes attachments easy to find and lets you send large files. Visit Hey.com now to start a 14 day trial. That's H E Y.com for a 14 day free trial. And now back to the podcast. Uh, I, I want to touch on a couple things that are themes in the book that really hit me and, and, uh, and I'm sure others that have uh, read it, uh, one is this idea of uh, being a, a a bystander, a benefiting bystander. Yeah. That those of us that are white, through just being white, have had certain experiences and 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 um, benefits of be of being white. Talk about that a little
2: bit. Yeah, this is a this is a, a tough one because I want to. And I'm glad you you posed it the way you did. Um, I, I want to make sure that that the listeners and and hopefully they'll read the book, so I'll get the complete context. Get what I'm trying to say here. Um, when we see a system that works for us, we don't question it. We engage in it. Um, when we, I'm not even sure people notice all the time that it's not working for someone else. It, we're so used to seeing it not work. That we almost get used to seeing it not work for those folks, and we wonder if there's other reasons why it's not working for them. Um, I call that a benefiting bystander. You see something, someone in harm. You see a system rolling over someone that that um, repeatedly, um, and and you you don't say anything about it. You don't step in. And I make the analogy back to to um, to lynchings, which is a terrible visual to to create. Um, But if you think about it, there were there were public spectacles of lynchings. People, hundreds of people would gather and watch a lynching like it was entertainment. And you can't tell me that there weren't people in that audience thinking there's something wrong with this. (laughs) Like like this isn't okay. Is that person really guilty? What did they really do? And um, but yet they didn't do they didn't ask enough questions about what's going on and they didn't do anything to stop it. And, and I think we've got a, a good bit of that going on right now. And, and it shows up in statements like, what about, you know, what about teen pregnancy and, and what about black on black crime? And, and, and if these folks would just behave better, they'd have different outcomes. And that's just, those are just, the, the, to me, those are, are, you know, when you say what about, it sounds like a question, but it's really a statement saying you've got a problem. I don't have a problem. That's the definition of a a benefiting bystander because it's working for you and it's not working for someone else. So that's what I'm trying to say there, that you're not a racist and I'm not holding you at fault, but I am saying um, this situation is not working out for everyone and shouldn't it? I mean, this is the United States of America and we have these inalienable rights and and uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and that should, should apply to everyone without regard to their race. And um, so that's really what I'm trying to say there. And I don't know how well I just said it, but I tried. Well, uh,
1: no, I think it's a, I think it's an excellent point, and it's something again that that um, those of us who have watched uh, have to be willing to admit. Uh, and uh, it just it, it means that that we can all. Uh, appreciate and, and just understand and maybe moves us to action in, in, in a way that we can help. And along those lines, you talk about the difference between equality and equity. And I was just fascinated by this because, yes, there have been laws that were passed, civil rights movement, etc., that created a sense of equality under the law. But that's different than equity and how we are ultimately treated, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So first it does, you know, it it doesn't close the gap on how we're actually treated. There's a law, there's a, there's the, there's the policy and then there's the practice. Uh, And the practices of that policy is often very, very disproportional. You know, whether you're talking about voting rights um, and the argument that we're still having in this country about that, um, which uh, people would say, well, there's, there's no one saying blacks can't vote. But if you move the precinct one mile from where it was to where you want it to be, you can you can um, diminish the the access, the true access to voting, and people know how to do that math, and they know where the bus route runs, and they know how to make the line a little longer um, by closing a, a site and, and under the reasonable reasonableness of uh, cutting cutting costs. Um, people know how to do that, you know. In one of the states in this country, you, you cannot use your uh, state university ID for. For your uh, ID at the poll, um, but you can use your hunting license ID, both issued by the state. What's the difference? Eighty percent of the, eighty-two percent of the of the uh, hunting licenses are white, and sixty-five uh, percent or so of the. The, the state college folks were uh, black and brown. And and that, that kind of difference means we just got to ask more questions uh, 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 about what's going on, um, because I don't think my white friends intend to stop people from voting. I really don't think so. But yet they benefit and they watch because it supports their political leaning. Well, that's still benefiting, you know, being a benefiting uh, bystander. And th- those are the kind of examples I, I think we could we could point to, but, but there are more, I mean, you know, we're doing this in a a lot of different ways, whether it's housing or public education Um, and our public education system has become so segregated um, that it is um, we might as well go back to kind of separate, but equal, uh, which was never equal, but we're headed back that way. And these schools and their performance is so different. Um, So uh, there's so many more examples, Paul, that I could use there. And yet here we sit, we see the outcomes and we don't ask enough questions about why is that the way it is? If you ask why four or five times, I think you'll get to a root cause that makes you say, oh, that I didn't know that was the problem.
1: I think that's what's so unique about your approach, because as I read your work, I didn't look to you as complaining uh, or being angry or upset. I think what you were asking us that you wrote these letters to is to simply understand. And as a result of understanding the impact of who we are and, and what has happened over these years, to be able to act in a way that can move the needle better or forward more. And you simply said, for example, with related to businesses, we're just behind. We're, we're, we just are behind where all of you are. And so just give us an opportunity to be at the table, to level the playing field so that we can participate, so that we have a chance to build wealth, that we have a chance to build multi-generational businesses. We have a chance to impact the communities in, in which we live in an, in an active way. But I love that you talked about these actions of intentionality. So as a, uh, as a leader... Uh, whether it's a white leader or a black leader, what can we do proactively to participate, to act, to help make things better?
2: Yeah, we'll give you some practical examples. I'll start with uh, my my friends who own companies, um, large or small. Um, We've got superpowers because we spend money. We spend money on things in our supply chain to help us deliver value to our customers. We spend money on insurance. We spend money on rent. Um, we hire people, we promote people, we support people, we have people on our board, uh, we give philanthropically to the to the communities. If we are intentional in all of those ways to saying, I'm going to create a number, let's make it 10% to start out with, that 10% of uh, my supply chain is going to be uh, Black companies, and I'm going to work and work with local folks and national folks to help me find folks who can deliver that kind of value into my supply chain. I'm going to solve for, um, for this issue of race a little bit. And, um, and and I'm going to see that I'm going to find partners who are going to be super loyal to me and, and and improve my supply chain. But it's that intentionality because I'm unlikely to, it's unlikely to happen naturally. You just put on an RFP, you're unlikely to get the kind of representation in a, uh, a request for proposal, and a response to a request for proposal, that's really going to diversify your supply chain. If you're hiring and, and you you know um, and you're looking for an HR leader, and uh, you you intentionally say, listen, I, I want to make sure the pool is is got people of color in it that are um, qualified to do this job. You know, all, you know, and not just by name only, but or by race only, but by qualifications that can do this job. So so that intentionality is one. I think as individuals asking more questions everywhere you sit. So for example, if you see things that are just so disproportionately out of whack by the numbers that you see, start asking yourself and others, why is that? Why is that? Whether it's crime rate, whether it's homelessness, whether it's um, need for, for assistance around food, why are those things happening? I think the more we talk about the whys the more we have opportunities for people to say hey, i think we can solve that um and but until we ask why we assume it's the way it, it's going to be and i say it is going to be that way until we decide it's going to be somehow different so i, I, don't, I don't know if i gave you the, the kinds of examples you you wanted to hear there paul but probe more if i didn't those are because of- we're looking
1: at things that are very practical that those of us that are in business deal with all the time. And, and a clarification though, I want to make Mel because you and I talked about this was that this is, is not about numbers, so to speak. It's not about checking the box, say, okay, I'm going to have a diversity program and I hire X number of black people or people of color. Uh, you're simply saying, get us to the table, give, give us a chance, uh, the level, the playing field is still level. In other words, uh, we don't hire someone just because they're black or brown or, or we, we, we allow them to be a part of the process. Yeah. Just like when, we, when it comes to um, our culture, our accountability for performance, uh, nobody gets a pass. You I still know. have to live by the qualities of whatever values that company has set for itself, regardless of
2: your color. Yeah, no. We, you, know, Thank you for for helping me clarify that. Absolutely, uh, you, you, you. Actually, you, you hurt this cause if you hire just because of race, because if a person comes in and they don't live by the values of the organization, then um, uh, the organization says, "I get it. We hire people that are not qualified to do our work, and and we do it because they're black." Therefore, blacks must be un, underqualified. Right. And we don't want to do that. But I do want to make sure I, I say this out loud. There are things in our hiring criteria and our hiring process that are exclusionary. And I think people should review their thought process, review the steps that they take, review even the the, uh, the desired characteristics of, of an of an employer. So let me give you an example in our craft uh company, um we used to have you must have a high school and this has nothing to do with race, but you, you used to have to have a high school diploma or a GED. And um consultant was looking at our hiring practices and said, well, what about the GED is in the job? And that's exactly what they heard back crickets. Now, there are certain things that in the job they've got to be able to do, but our laborers don't even have significant measuring um, uh, task in their job. Their biggest job is to show up and understand our safety protocol and be willing to work. And so why do we have that in there? I'm not even sure. So reviewing what has to be there because of the job, what's, what you've come to like to have, but you really don't need, and then really question your preferences, you know, preferences of a particular school, um, pre- preferences of, of a particular way of wearing your hair or dressing. I think those are things that we we've got to start questioning in our own minds. Do they really matter? If a person will line up with the values of my organization, and they bring the skills that I absolutely need, not just all the, not the extra stuff I might like to have, then I think they, they are a viable candidate. And the last thing I'll throw in here is, it is okay, in my opinion, to, to make diversity and even um, a focus on uh, black and brown people, a part of the search process, not the reason to buy or to, to hire or to buy from, but a part of the search process. And um, and 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 letting the person who's leading the search, whether it's a your HR team or if it's your procurement people, to say in that pool of candidates must be this. You must have a, a diverse pool. Uh, I have vetoed hires in our company because even in my company, people still bring me a candidate that um, that their peers were. They all look just like them, and um, that bothers me. <laughs>
1: It's Having this conversation is um, uplifting for me and, and through, again, the, the book, uh, Dear White Friend, which I hope all of the listeners will, will get and, and read and be inspired by as much as, as I have. But, but I'm also afraid that the conversation that we're having, that my efforts to understand what's happening and to try to share this message with other business leaders um, can, can be muted as a trend or a flavor of the month and in a reaction to the killing of George Floyd or something that that happens in society. How, Mel, can we all work and participate to make this conversation
2: permanent and comfortable? Yeah, I I wish I had the absolute answer for you, Paul. Um, This book came out in July, and um, I can tell you it's all I've thought about virtually every day since the book came out. Um, You know, my book's one of hundreds on this topic. Um, But what's different about what I'm trying to do, because I'm not trying to sell speaking fees and consulting fees, and I'm simply saying my only metric, uh, I think I've mentioned this to you, is is, uh, numbers of books, because I want to infect the nation. With this, th- with this on-ramp to this conversation. But, but here's what I'm trying to do, at least in the places I touch. I am trying to institutionalize th- the questions, the, the uh, review, the process. I'm trying to institutionalize equity into those. So let's just take our hiring process. As we look at our hiring, I'm trying to institutionalize the idea of it has to look like this. It has to be producing candidates that look like this. If it's not, whoever's running it is failing at their metric and you know what happens in business when we fail and in our community when there's an open position let's make sure that as we go look for a new you know ceo of uh our united way or of our arts organization our economic development organization that there's a institutionalized a a a community-based accepted way to go about that that everyone understands that's how we do it and the outcome is a a set of candidates that looks the way we say we value. Um, when we are spending our dollars as business uh, leaders, when we are inviting people to um, engage in community activities, uh, how does the room look? And is that now okay? And and how, you know, so, so it's a new culture we're trying to build, Paul, because if we get it, caught into a culture so we start with the systems and if we can get it caught into a culture i think we've got a chance over time to create a new normal that when you walk into a room there are all white males in the room and i love white males some of my best friends are white males well if you walk in a room and that's all you've got someone should say we can't start because we have we 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 haven't gotten to where we want to get to so um uh, it is it is um You know, people come to me all the time now in this community and ask, oh, my input on this, input on that. And I always ask, who's at the table? And if they've got a bunch of people, just if the people aren't diverse, I wonder... I don't wonder I say, hey, come back when you've got a group that can actually attack this question from 360 degrees. So so that's been my approach to institutionalize this as often as I can to preach about let's build it into our systems. Let's make sure we're we've got that embedded into our processes and every single organization that uh, that I talk to. And even at my house, you know, I mean, if the person doing my deck in the back and the three people that gave me a bid or are all white contractors, then what have I done wrong? And, and how, how does that work? If you, if you go to our website, uh, dearwrightfriend.com and you look at the bottom where we've given links to go buy the book, of course, Amazon's there. Of course, Barnes and Noble is there, but there are also three black booksellers because they can sell books online too, just as just as easily and maybe even better than some of the others. And we just gotta be conscious about that.
1: Yeah, that that's so true. It, Asking ourselves these questions, I was just uh, reflecting on your work with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a CEO of a business, and he was just saying, you know, it just made me think. Look at my advisory board; it's a bunch of um, uh, middle-aged white men, and uh, something that he just hadn't thought about. And yep. and just like as I was kind of reawakened to this topic a couple of years ago, I, I realized and and that that over the years in my career, I've had thousands of employees probably half of which were employees of color. And uh, but then I, I asked myself, did I ever ask one of them, one of them, what it was like being a person of color growing up within our company and how they felt being treated, however they were treated. And and I never even asked that question yeah. and, you know, sh- shame on me. And, and And yet that's our opportunity is to simply understand, listen and understand and, and beyond the, the people that we hire, the, the, the vendors that we buy stuff from, I think there's an opportunity in our companies, in particular our small companies, to sit openly and have these conversations with without fear, to understand what it's like. Uh, just like this uh, whole pandemic has probably opened up conversations about topics like mental health, et cetera, that, oh, that yeah. before we never talked about. Absolutely. So uh, I think we have an opportunity to talk about these things and, and because there's, there's no, you know, there's no line between work and home. It's just life. And, uh, I and, right. and let's, let's get to a point where we can talk about it openly and, and trust each other, uh, by listening um, lastly, Mel, if if well, you just
0: think you,
2: about before you yes. before you it to that, just a couple points there. First, I think that is you, you're you're so spot on about our opportunities just to sit and be with people and hear their stories and and understand how it works inside of your own company because I think you might make changes. But my my white peers are often afraid of asking that question because, and here's the here's what I hear: what if they say something that I can't change, or I don't want to change, or they say something that's unreasonable that they want me to do, that, then I said, that's that's w- what you know. adult conversation looks like. <laughs> like you, you get a chance to have a conversation about that, right? But now you've heard it. You can unpack it. You can talk about what you can do and what you can't do. So a lot of people are afraid because they're afraid of what people might say. What you should be afraid of is what they're not saying. And because that's, that's what's showing up in your workplace. That's what's showing up in their job performance. And um, so I, I just think that's a big, big opportunity. The other thing you said is, um, and I, I don't think you meant it, but so you just said shame on you. And I, I would say, uh, you know what, we come to know what we come to know when we come to know it. And, you know, it's cool with me that, you know, two, five, 10 years ago, that wasn't on your mind. But since it is now you're willing and that's what really matters to me. And so I, I just invite people when you join the party and you become aware of things, it's the right time. And um, don't feel guilty about what you didn't do before. Let's talk about what we're going to do next.
1: And, and once we do get to that point, then, then act. And I think uh, especially for business leaders who are used to being challenged, who are used to uh, having difficult conversations uh, this is one we we shouldn't be afraid of and 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 I just thank you for opening this conversation up for everyone in a way that will help us get there not overnight but over time. Sure. Uh, Mel, I want to just end with these uh, five quick hit questions that we have right. fun with with everybody, kind of the association game. just name the the first thing that comes to your mind. Can you name a leader that you look up to?
2: yeah, there's there's so many, but uh you, we named our youngest son. Uh, Martin, uh, after Martin Luther King. And I know that's cliche, but I got to pick Martin Luther King because of, uh, how he, how he struck a tone, um, and probably moved our country, uh, forward faster, um, didn't get to all the places I wanted to get to, but faster than, 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 than many other leaders have. Great, great example. How about a book that influenced your leadership style? Yeah, this is a boring one. It's a tough read, but Emotional Intelligence um, changed the way I approached life, changed the way I parented, but Emotional Intelligence would be that book. Excellent. Good one. Do you have an all-time favorite movie? Love Jones. Um, love that movie. Um, um, mainly love Me Long in that movie. So yeah, love that movie. How about a favorite TV
1: series to binge watch?
2: I can't stop watching Suits. You know, (laughs) every time I finish, I I start over and start watching the first series and watch it all again. So Suits would be the one I've been enjoying the most.
1: Yeah, that brought back some memories. That was a good one. And lastly, what's something about you that people don't know? You know,
2: I'm a a pretty boring guy. That would be a tough one for me. Things that I was a single dad for eight and a half years prior to meeting my wife and getting married. I don't know if a lot of people know that.
1: Oh man, good for you!
2: Um,
1: well, uh, this has just been great to have this conversation with you to help get the word out. Again, I encourage people to read the book. I want to reflect on a few of the things that you said today that I learned, Mel. Um, and and I, I love how you know you you came from really a research background by getting your PhD, uh, but you really speak about life in ways that are more important than even the data that's there uh, I, the, the way that you wrote the book as a series of letters and the approach I've talked about, um, that the understanding that people have looked at this topic, um, as a monologue and not a dialogue, we tend to just find people that think like us, that look like us and feel good because uh, other people are saying the same things. And, and we don't open ourselves up to, um, to listen to others in a way where we're truly having a dialogue and, um, and doing that with compassion, uh, we just talk to people in our our own echo chamber, and and that's really our opportunity. Uh, I, I could tell that you were definitely molded by your your great uh, engaged parents who were very pers- purposeful about education, um, and and uh, the idea that it's okay to put yourself out there and to speak up, and and you made your way through your childhood. Uh, growing up in a black neighborhood said, I'm, I saw what was happening in the white neighborhoods too and said, you know what, I, if I'm going to really have an impact on society um, that I've got to uh, learn about and be a part of that too. Um, and, and just molded yourself as a, as a community driven person uh, and someone really molded for, for action as well. So uh, that corporate experience at IBM of course, was fantastic. You still had the itch to get out there to be an entrepreneur uh, like many did. And like you said, some businesses worked out better than others. And here you are running a a very successful company uh, right now. But I think your contribution is is much bigger than that. Um, There's this understanding that I now have, and I think others have, that that uh, it's been more difficult for people of color if we understand what had happened, even if it's hundreds of years ago, that the changes that have happened in society are still fairly recent and we've got a long way to go. And we all have the opportunity to, to do something, to act intentionally, to uh, create uh, equity uh, in our lives and in our businesses. And we can do that in a very practical way because all of us hire people. We buy things, we build board advisors. Uh, and if we stop and, and institutionalize equity into our processes by asking ourselves these questions, by giving people of color the opportunity to participate by loving the play playing field and yet not sacrificing our standards, our values along the way, then we can all make a contribution uh, to this issue uh, and, and I think that's the impact, that's the moment um, for us to turn this from a fruit, you know, flavor of the month issue that's going to fade away and wait for the next incident to something that's just part of what we do, to what we discuss, to, to what we discuss and the impact all of us as business leaders can have. So I really want to thank you um, for sharing your message with us today,
2: Mel. Oh, I appreciate that. It was an eloquent uh, summary of our conversation. And um, I, I, I would I couldn't let this pass without saying that the work you guys are doing with Small Giants and the intentionality around uh, inclusion is, um, is, is just something to watch. And I, I look forward to continuing our relationship and helping you influence the things that you're trying to move over there too. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mel. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at Small Giants Buzz. Until next time.